0: Let's begin with prayer. Lord, as we read earlier, your word can bring dead bones back to life. And so we ask that you would work through the reading and preaching and teaching of your word to bring new life where it was not there before. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Last week I was driving down Kemp and I saw a sign that read, You are powerful I thought yes I am but then they said I need to go get a tan at their place so I guess the um, pasty white Jeremy is not as powerful as the tans in broadened brown Jeremy but you see the messages around too it's not just on billboards it's in movies it's in songs it's from inspirational speeches it's in children's programming where we're told, you are powerful. And yet, we have no power without it, without it being given to us by God, and also sustained by God. I'm not denying the fact that humans have done marvelous things. We have created things to destroy cancer. We've brought peace where there was not peace before. We've landed people on the moon and brought them back. Yet we only have pe- have the power to do those things because God enables us to do them. Take for instance the most basic fact that we only live as long as God allows us to live. Many of you probably read this last week of the tragic death of the nine people in West Texas. Six of whom were college golfers from New Mexico University. These were people who were in their prime physically. Surely with goals, dreams, and ambitions ahead of them. And tragically, they now have no power to fulfill them. Our power lasts. It extends only as far as God allows. Jesus made this clear when he was on trial. In John 1910 10-11, Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In other words, Pilate's telling Jesus, I have power. You've got to listen to what I say. You've got to do what I tell you. And yet Jesus answered him, You would have no authority, no power over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Surely over the last few weeks, most Ukrainians have felt powerless as they flee for their lives or fight just to stay alive. President Zelensky realizes he doesn't have power, so every day he is begging, pleading, speaking to a new or different nation, trying to urge more, because we can't do this alone. Yet, in our wealthy, in our healthy society, we keep all these thoughts at bay and say, you're powerful. You can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. And yet, the sooner we realize our impotence, and turn to God for grace and power, the sooner we will have true power and hope for change. Because God loves to help the humble, the needy, but he rejects the proud and the self-sufficient. We really see that played out here this morning in our passage, 2 Kings 13. I'm going to read each section as we get to it, and the first one we come to is we're going to see God's compassionate grace to rebels in the first nine verses. So please read along with me. Second Kings 13, one through nine. In the twenty-third year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned seventeen years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their homes, as formerly, nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of the Jeroboam, which he made them to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria, for there is not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made like the dust at the threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might are they not written in the books? of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. So Jehoaz slept with the, his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his place. Well, if you are one who has read through the Bible, or if you've been following along as we've been going through First and Second Kings, you recognize the all-familiar introduction at the beginning of the chapter. We're told of when a new king comes on the throne. Here it's in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. We're told who the king is. His name is Jehoaz, the son of Jehu. We're told of where he reigns. He reigns in Samaria. And we're told how long he reigns, 17 years. And then, at least in regards to the king of Israel, we hear the same refrain every single time, that they walked in the sins of Jeroboam, which was him making two golden calves for them to worship. I did a brief count. And that's said over 18 times in reference to the nation of Israel. And here, Jehoahaz, the new king, doesn't depart from those, but he continues, and thus the Lord punishes him by him continually losing in battle to Haziel and then his son, Ben-Hadad, both from Syria. And as you're reading through your Bible, your mind get, might get to this and start to wander. Dates, names, facts... Maybe good for a Bible-trivial pursuit, but doesn't make the most inspirational verse for the day. But as your mind starts to wonder, then there's a shocking verse, a surprising verse, verse 4. There we read that Jehoahaz seeks the Lord's favor, and the Lord listened. Look again at the reason in verse 4. It says, For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. You may remember language like that before in the Old Testament. It's similar to the words God spoke to Moses at the burning, but not consumed bush in Exodus 3. In Exodus 3 it says, Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. You know, God sees everything, but he takes special notice and care for his people when they are oppressed and they cry out to him. You know, when they realize we don't have the power to fix these problems and they turn to the Lord in prayer, then the power of God comes to them and helps them. Every week when I'm preparing, I read the passage several times. If I can, I translate it, and then I make notes, and then I'll read commentary, see what others have to say, and sometimes I'll listen to sermons by people on it. And this week, I listened to a sermon by a man named Steve Matthewson, and he said some things about why we don't see the power of God in our lives, or why we don't recognize the power of God in our lives, that struck me. And the first one he says, the first reason we often don't recognize the power of God in our life Is because we mistake what that looks like. We think the power of God is when we're winning. When everything's getting better. But the power of God is made most known in our weakness. So the power of God might be most powerfully in your life when you're not getting better, but you're crying out to Him in prayer. When things haven't improved, but you and those around you are more strongly leaning on the Lord that's when the power of god is most in our life when we are most recognizing our weakness and yet we tend to dismiss that A second reason we often don't see the power of god in our life is what's going on here we've wandered from the lord you know god is withholding power from israel and giving them into the hands of the syrians because they won't turn from their sin but god is Heard them cry out because of their oppression. And so in verse 5, he gives them a savior. Well, who is this savior? Is it the Assyrian king, adad nirari II, who invaded Syria, we know by history, in 805 B.C.? And perhaps he distracted the Syrians from being able to hurt Israel because now they're having to fend off their other border from Assyria. Or is it a mighty Israelite general or perhaps one of these kings? Maybe it's even Elisha. Well, we're not told, but that really doesn't matter who the human Savior is, because the point is not to focus on the human Savior, but to realize they only came because God sent them. God allowed them to come. God is the deliverer. You may get your singing voice on and sing, I've got the power. But God is the only one who can truly say that. And yet the amazing thing about this is, is look at verse 6. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. God delivered them. And yet, tragically, they just continued in the very sins that led them needing to be delivered in the first place. Not only did they continue in the sins of Jeroboam, but it adds that they were continuing Or the verb's a little unclear. Could be, perhaps, they restarted or reinvigorated the worship to Asherah. Sadly, this is a pattern we see throughout Israel's history. Hold your place there in 2 Kings 13 and turn back to the book of Judges. So, after the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. Turn to Judges chapter 2. and We'll read verses 11 through 19 because... We see this pattern in Israel's history many times. Judges chapter 2 beginning in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And as you probably are aware, it's not just an issue that happened back in Judges chapter 2 or 2 Kings 13. It's an issue that still exists today. I've shared before of a man who, when I was in seminary, I began to counsel and he started coming to our church because he had wrecked his marriage because of affairs and his alcoholism. He seemed sorrowful and we met regularly and he was, seemed sincere and serious about getting his life right in seeking the Lord. Yet as things improved, his wife came back. Things were better in his marriage and as that improved, his church attendance began to decline. When I tried to meet, he was dodgy about when we could meet or if we would even meet. And then finally, his life was back in order, but he was no longer with us, no longer meeting with me. God was merely a tool for something in his life. So why do you come to God? Why do you come to church? Is God merely the means to get your life back in order? Or, have you submitted yourself to God, His goals and plans for your life? Now, God isn't fooled. He sees through church attendance, public morality, religious observance, or our ability even to quote Bible verses, or speak on and on about theology. He sees through all that, and He questions all of us. Have we truly come to submit to God and love Him? Or are we wanting Him To serve us. You know some people sadly won't know the answer. Of that question. Till the day of judgment. Yet for those he loves. God calls them back from their wandering by. Disciplining them. And that's what we see here. For God continues to humble Israel. He continues to discipline them. So the verse 7 says. Their military is reduced to. Dust on the threshing floor. Israel's department of defense is. Completely inconsequential. They can do nothing. And yet the amazing thing of these first nine verses is that God knew Israel would not truly repent. Yet He still showed them compassion due to their earthly suffering. Suffering. Why would He do this? Because God does not delight in suffering. Thus God graciously works for Israel even when they're only crying out in pain. Even for people who he knows they'll continue to rebel, God shows grace and kindness. As Jesus says, he sends rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He gives food and friendship and relationships to believers and unbelievers. And the point of all that is not that we should abuse God's compassion, because he is patient and long suffering so that we will repent, but rather it's to delight in a God who continues to show compassion even when we don't deserve it the question we have to ask is are we changed and moved by his grace or are we hardened and stuck in our ways and yet god we're seeing here is greatly concerned with how we respond to him and we see that in the next set of verses verses 10 through 19 god's concern your response to him let's read those verses 2nd kings 13 beginning in verse 10 In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash king of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you'd made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Well, here we have this next section. It begins a telling of the reign of Jehoash, sometimes also called Joash, in the formulaic fashion that we described earlier. In four verses, we read about him, but we really don't hear much about him. Just when he reigned, where he reigned, how long, who his father was, where to read more about him. And that he's buried. I'm sure most of us hope our funeral has a little bit more said than those formulaic statements. They lived, they lived here, they died. Wow, what a life. And yet, though the whole reign of his throne is summarized in four verses with just these formulas, we then are given extra details. Verses 14 through 19 tell of another event after Jehoash or Joash's life. You know, the significant event is how he relates to God, and we see it by being told of his going up to see Elisha because Elisha is sick and going to die. You know, Elisha's death is going to bring it into a very significant portion of Israel's history, as we've been going through second, First and Second Kings. We've seen many kings, but interestingly, many chapters—I believe 13 out of 47—focus on Elijah. And Elisha, these men have been faithful lights to God in the midst of some of Israel's darkest days. And yet, even when the kings of Israel hated them, they recognized they were protection for them. Thus, Jehoash, a wicked king, is weeping at Elisha's bed, saying, "You're the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Where's our hope for victory?" Well, Elisha responds by offering more hope. He tells him to get this bow out to shoot the window out the window towards Syria and then he lays his hands on him symbolizing the victory that God will give over Syria in fact he says these victories will be like they were at Aphek well Aphek is the place where Israel had a great victory over Syria in 1st Kings chapter 20 there Israel though much inferior defeated over 125,000 Syrians He's basically saying, you're going to win like we did on Iwo Jima or on the beaches of Normandy. He's reminding them of the great battles in the past to say, look, you will do this again in the future. And yet remember what the Israelite army is like. They're like the dust at threshing. This is not some great promise being made to Goliath, the mighty warrior with many troops behind him. This is the promise given to the little shepherd boy who can't even get the armor on that doesn't seem like it's going to work and we see that and what happens next because I think that gives greater insight in what happens with Elisha what happens is uh, he tells Jehoash to strike the ground and I think reading behind between the lines and seeing the context Jehoash kind of has a three meager unbelieving like oh yeah (laughs) we're gonna go defeat the syrians yep here we go i don't think elisha had given some cryptic message you have to understand you actually have to strike five or six times then you get the victory i think what's going on is that he's saying your three faint-hearted hitting on the ground are showing that you don't really believe god's word that you don't trust that god can do what is going promises he will do they have as much enthusiasm as the grandson has being told to thank his grandma for new underwear for christmas thanks grandma what i've always wanted now here is jehoash being told look you're gonna go defeat him we yeah really that's gonna happen and so elisha responds in anger because he's not trusting the word of the lord and so he says yes it'll happen because god promised it but only three times like your three week bumpings and i think this is reminding us of the importance of how we respond to god and i think one of the most misunderstood aspects of christianity in the united states is that how we respond to god matters to him what i mean by that is I think often Christians give the impression that God is sitting in heaven anxiously wringing His hands just begging and pleading that somehow we'll come to Him. He really needs us. He's in a desperate straits. Oh no, everyone's leaving. As though He needs us. Not that we need Him. Well, it's true. God wants us. He even longs for us to return. But have you ever considered when Jesus said, follow me, that was a command, not just a request. God is the creator of the universe and we must obey him. He lovingly commands us to return to him, but God doesn't need us. We need him. He isn't anxious or fretting that if he doesn't get us back, he's going to be in big trouble. In fact, the opposite is true. If we don't get God back, we'll be in eternal trouble. Consider, for example, the way Jesus interacted with people. We see this played out. For example, John chapter 6, he tells the crowd, I'm the bread of life. And then he goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. But when many disciples heard that word, They are troubled. In fact, in John 6, it says that many left and would no longer walk with him. Yet the shocking thing, at least to our American ears, that never want to offend anyone, is that Jesus didn't get upset. He didn't say, oh, did I say something wrong? Let me rephrase that so y'all can make it more palatable. He didn't give our silly non-apologies like, oh, I'm sorry if what I said offended you. Okay. He didn't call in a messaging team saying, you know, how can we rebrand so that we can make the message more? Because I need these people. Yes, Jesus wept when they didn't come to him. That is true. And we should rejoice in that. But the point is, he was unwilling to change on what it took for us to come back to him. He said, you must repent. You must see me as the pearl of great price in which you'll give up everything to follow me. And Jehoash's half-hearted, unbelieving actions starkly remind us that God cares how we respond to Him. And just consider what the author highlights. Four verses, nondescript, of his whole reign. doesn't tell us what kind of food he ate as a king. He doesn't tell us of Jehoash's international or domestic policy. He doesn't tell us what kind of crown he wore or what kind of chariot he rode in. All the things that we'd be interested in, those don't matter. What matters? Six, seven verses on how did you respond to God's word. That's the only thing that mattered in Jehoash's life. You see, God doesn't care if we're a king or if we're the lowest person. He cares how do you live whether you're the king or whether you're the lowest person. You know, in contrast to Jehoash's half-hearted faith, we're told in Hebrews 11.6, And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You know, Jesus called us to love God with all our whole heart, all our soul, all our strength. There's no half-hearted option in Jesus' command to trust and follow Him. To follow Him, meaning to turn from our sins, to repent, and to live our lives for Him. Jesus doesn't want mere lip service. He demands our life be given to Him. But that may beg the question, Well, Why would we give everything, give our whole life to God. Well, there be many reasons, but we see some in the end of the verses, and that is that God has control over death and enemies. Verses 20 through 25, let's read those verses in the chapter. 2 Kings 13, verse 20, So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Haziel king of Syria pressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Haziel king of Syria died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities that he'd taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Well, the last few verses of this chapter give us three powerful vignettes or stories of the power of God and His Word. They're so quick you can almost miss them. The first? is that we're told that Elisha dies, and then he's buried. And we're also told that Moabites, I guess their springtime fund is to go raid Israel. One time there's a funeral and they're coming in and the people who are on the funeral crew go, that's the Moabites. Pitch the guy in and he comes back to life. How did all that happen? We're not told. But we're seen, we're, we see that it does happen. And even maybe more surprising The author just keeps going. He doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't tell us who this man is or where he lived. He's just, oh yeah, normal thing with Elisha. People just come back to life. But we're going to pause because this story is speaking powerfully to the power of God. You've got to consider what's going on because what's going on is an influential figure in Israel's history just died. And what do we do when someone strongly influential leaves? Maybe it's a mentor and they go away, or president of a company and they resign, or a coach. We say, what are we going to do now that they're gone? How are we going to continue? How will I make it? Yet here we see, even though Elisha is dead and gone, God's power is not. The point is not so much Elisha's bones. I don't think if you could find Elisha's bones and you took your grandma and threw her in, I don't think she's coming back to life. The point is that God still works after Elisha is dead. You don't need Elisha. You need the one who Elisha told about. God is saying, look, yes, Elijah was great. Elisha was wonderful. But I'm still here. I'm the one who gives new life. And I think they and we should see this connection that we read earlier with Ezekiel 37. Because there Ezekiel goes and he sees the valley of Dry bones. And what happens when God's word comes? Those bones come back to life. The prophets, Elijah, Elisha may be dead and gone, but the power of God's word remains. Power so great that it can bring life out of death. How much more do we know this as people who know of Jesus' death and resurrection? Because the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But we give thanks to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus was able to conquer sin and death, for as Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Thus, as Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So why should we give God our all? Because he's the only one who has power over life in death but there's a second powerful story here and that is that tells us of the gracious and powerful word of God because it gives us really a second angle on what we read earlier in verse 4 chapter 13 verse 4 we saw that God heard Jehoaz's cry for help because of Israel's oppression and he listened to them here in these verses verses 22 and 23 it says, specifically verse 23, The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembers His promises and He acts upon them. Centuries before, God had set His promise, his given His promises on Abraham. And God has not forget, forgotten. You know, we have a hard time remembering promises for a couple weeks god has gone centuries and he still remembers and is still fulfilling his promises and god has not changed he still keeps his promises we're going to turn and look at four promises of god so flip in your bible it might be helpful to go all the way back to revelation and then go to first john chapter 1 verse 9 so first John, if you find Revelation, it's just back three short books before that, going backwards, Jude, Third John, First John, Second John, then first John. First John chapter one verse nine. We have this amazing promise that says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God promises that for any and all sin. Flip back three books, so 2 Peter, 1 Peter, and then James. Go to James chapter 1. What do people want? They want to be in charge. They want authority. They want a crown. What does James 1.12 promise us? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised. God has promised you this to those who love him. You don't need to seek authority on your own. Be faithful to God even in trials, and he's promised you a crown that you'll never get on your own. Flip over or just turn in your eyes. One chapter, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who loved Him? You want to be rich? You want to have a kingdom? God has promised it to you. Do you love Him? He keeps His promises. Or flip to the right, two books, First Peter and then Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4, it reads, "...His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature." having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, you, in some manner, will have part of the divine nature. Think of all the things we pursue, and God has promised us so much more. Will you seek them on your own, or will you trust God's promises? Are you looking to your own power, or are you looking to His word are you trusting his promises you don't have to flip back to second kings 13 because i'll wrap up the last story we read it because the third story reminds us that we can trust all this because what happens god keeps his word jehoash goes and he defeats syria but you may have noticed something specific he defeated them three times not once not twice not four times not two and a half or any other fractional other number, exactly what Elisha told him three times is what happened. God keeps his word. As Jesus said, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So why should you give God your all? Because he promises to give you more than you could ever dream of on this earth. And his word Always comes true. Now, remember who this was written to. Most of the people who read First and Second Kings, or at that point, just called Kings, they were sitting in exile, far away from Israel, seemingly hopeless, and yet they're being reminded, were being reminded, you know, if we'll trust God's word, if we'll be faithful to Him, better days. Are coming maybe not on this earth there's no promise that your health will improve there's no promise that you will improve your wealth but there is a promise that he's the resurrection and the life and that one day though we die yet we shall live and we will be with him forever so where is your hope placed where are you putting your confidence for power your God's power is still at work. Let me end by recounting this story from Jonathan Lehman. He tells of Richard Elelu. He was a Muslim man who had no interest in reading the Bible. He did have one really good use for the Bible that was given to him from a Christian, though, and that is the thin, crackly pages were great for rolling up his cigarettes and his marijuana joints. One time, he Ripped a page out, but didn't have the chance to smoke a joint. So he put the page in his pocket. Later that day, he pulled it out and he read Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. And he couldn't get the verse out of his head. So he sought out the man who gave him the Bible. And asked to learn of the gospel. And Richard Ilelu, though a Muslim in a Muslim nation, became a Christian. And did his life become all better? No. The people in his tribe wanted to kill him. His father told him, I wish you had died. But he had a new father. And he had something much better than he ever could have gotten in this earth. God's power is still at work. Are you putting your hope in him? Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we see our weakness. Because when we are weak, then we are strong, because your power can work through us. Lord, we are a desperate people. Lord, every one of us in here battles sin, battles thoughts we don't want, battles all kinds of issues. And yet, in you is victory, in you and hope, in you is forgiveness. And so we cry out to you, Lord, have mercy on us sinners. Give us the power of your resurrected Son. We thank you that through faith you give it to us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.